Welcome to the Durable DevOps podcast powered by M3, the podcast about invincible IT built for the speed of change. I'm your host, Connor Dallenbank, and today I'm joined virtually by Dan Proctor, founder and uh, founder of Intangible, and most recently director of IoT at Proctor & Gamble. Hey, Dan, how are you today? Hey, doing great, Connor. Thanks for reaching out. Really glad to have you here. And uh, yeah, I know we know obviously had a, a chat a few weeks ago, and we got to to know each other a little bit. Uh, we're both for our guests. We're we're still in uh, you know quarantine in some sense. So I working from home. Both of us. We're we're having this conversation over Zoom. Um, I'm in New York. It's a grey, rainy day in the middle of August, but it's very hot and humid. Um, and I purposely leave my AC off when we record these podcasts. So Dan will be able to see me probably sweating, but you guys listening won't have that that problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually just over, uh, I'm in Muncie, Indiana right now, actually visiting my parents for a bit. And uh, I had to just come inside because that uh, Midwest humidity was getting to me. Yeah, it's uh, it, it gets a lot, but it's, I always say I, I can't complain because when you have like frigid winters as well, you have to just enjoy everything that you get when it's not cold. So it's how it is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so Dan, um, you know, give us a, an introduction. You know, tell us a bit more about you, your your background, and kind of what's got you to being here today, and and someone who's very recently been a director of IoT at a major Fortune 500 company. Yeah, so I think best way to just say it is I'm a nerd, um, probably like most of everybody who comes on this podcast, but uh, I'd say from a very young age, I kind of got into um, hacking speakers, if you will. Um, I remember blowing up my dad's big uh, speakers, probably, gosh, I was probably under six years old, but ever since then, I've kind of been infatuated with how things work and uh, started taking things apart, playing with things. Uh, my grandma always thought I learned how to read playing Pokemon Red and Blue growing up. Um, in kindergarten, I, I remember just being obsessed with that game and you know playing it so much. Um, but from there, I, I had an amazing third grade teacher growing up who um, I think I actually hacked the Oregon Trail game. And that's when she kind of realized, oh, oh wow, maybe, uh, maybe I can do something a little different. But uh, she was amazing, got me involved with uh, Intel at one point, had these really cool like digital cameras and stuff that you could play with. So I was video editing. Um, I just remember going to like the, the Fort Wayne, Indiana Zoo and taking just a ton of um, photos, videos on this thing, making a huge collage. And again, this is back in 2001. So, you know, video editing really wasn't a thing. And here I am putting together this entire kind of presentation. So. It was really cool. And after that, she got me involved with, uh, we had a local college, Ball State University, and um, didn't know it at the time, but I was doing a lot of visual basic editing, um, making fancy word art, making all the rainbows there for, you know, putting fancy fonts and everything in files. But I don't know, that, that kind of evolved from there. Um, I want to say middle school. I think all my friends just knew I was a nerd, but they didn't really, you know, have much of an idea. But ended up hacking the uh, Xbox 360 at the time. And um, again, had no idea what I was doing, but I love Gears of War. Gears of War got me into um, just kind of gaming, loved the Unreal Engine, the 360 having internet access as the very first thing I went to. And uh, I remember downloading Gears of War 2 about two months early. And um, at the time I loved swimming. So I was a huge swimmer and it was the only thing that could pull me away from swim practice was technology. And um, 
it was basically the CD or DVD ROM drive of the Xbox 360. If you would flash it with a certain Linux kernel, um, you would actually dual boot um, from your desktop into this little Linux drive, and then it would reflash the firmware on the disk drive, which removed the DRM. And then I could go online and torrent all the video games early because the publishers at the time had to have the game ready. Um, so I just remember being on Xbox Live, having my headset on, talking to the Gears of War developers, and they're like, no, how the heck did you get this? Who are you? And, <laughs> how did you get uh, <laughs> it, Exactly. And I, I was immediately banned from Xbox Live shortly after. Um, so at that point, I had to have a, a separate Xbox 360, one for online gaming, and then one for playing all the single-player games that I could possibly imagine. But Nothing ever malicious. It was always just, um, you know, my, my parents probably won't enjoy me saying it, but, you know, we couldn't afford to have $60 games or even renting them for as much as I was playing them at the time. So for me, that was my way to get around it. Well, that, that, that creates um, a great opportunity, right? Like in a sense of if you haven't got something on a plate, you'll find a way of getting it. And I don't mean like I suppose it, technically that wasn't the, maybe the legal way of doing it, but I don't mean like you were stealing, you were just trying to find access to something that other kids would have had uh, very easily, right? So you were just finding your own way and it, and it made you this more creative person. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't think, you know, growing up uh, again in Muncie, Indiana, um, luckily I did have some very great public school teachers. Um, my dad's a public school teacher as well. Um, that did kind of recognize my ability, but I don't think I ever had anybody who truly understood what I was doing. And um, kind of a funny story I, I mentioned too, my dad didn't even know this, but um, it was my ninth grade English class. And I decided to, at that point, um, it was iOS 1.0, iPhone had just come out, and I jailbroke the um, original iPod Touch. But the reason I had done that is because I wanted to play Pokemon and I could play the Pokemon games emulated at like 10 times normal speed. And um, because it was iPod touch, I could hide it behind my English book in class. So because it was touch controls, I could play it while hiding from all my teachers. Um, so I don't think Miss Bly really appreciated that when she finally did catch me, but <laughs> that was the whole reason I did that. And I had the app or I had apps on um, the iPhone before the actual app store had even come out at that point. I, I love it. I, I think what's interesting about your story, and, and so, I think so many people that listen will be like, I can relate to that guy, right? Because there, there's, there's the era really, which is right now we're in this phase where technology is so accessible, right? Like most people can get access to it. It's not like you have to go and kind of pull out some kind of server and start like doing things at home on your own and, or hacking into an Xbox to get access to certain things, right? We're in a time where we all have phones, we have laptops, it's just everywhere we look. It's, it's in our watches, it's in whatever you could think of, right? So previously there was this era of how did we get hold of technology? I just wanna break and fix and find solutions and tinker with things. Um, and guys like yourself were part of that era where you were just figuring it out. Uh, and quite often in the scenario you mentioned with, uh, with Xbox where you were kind of in there and the developers were like, how did you get here? Right. Like yeah. that's, that's a lot. That's more like a, that would be a very high level um, scenario now. You know, that would be the story of like the kid who gets into the bank or, or the, the back end of some extremely large company. Uh, it still does happen, but it's much, much uh, less common than you would have seen maybe sort of 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the case the other week with uh, with that 17 year old, you know, with the, the whole Twitter scam and it's like, you know, 
I, I think we, we criminalize that and it's right. He, he did a bad thing and that definitely should be, you know, slap on the wrist. But at the same time, that's pretty genius that he was able to do that. It's, it's more, exactly. It's, it's how do you find that talent and how do you actually teach somebody like that to, to put it to good use? And if you look at the formal education system, especially for computer science, at least it never made sense to me. And I look back in um, high school, I was actually able to take um, college courses. So my senior year, I was going to Ball State and um, taking some computer science courses, and I did terrible. Um, I was always a, an A student, but when it came to those computer science courses, I, I think it was so rudimentary, like the things that they were teaching, like how do I do a print line in Java? And it was like, okay, th this doesn't make sense to me because it wasn't, it wasn't really outcome-based. It was more do it exactly like we're telling you. But as we see in so many kind of special education students, you know, the a standardized test in that way of educating kids just isn't the best way for everybody. And instead of forcing them into that mold, like how, how do you figure out how to take advantage of those talents? So that's, that's fascinating because this week, it's funny you've said this because I've just been doing some, uh, some learning about neurodiversity and kind of gaining more insights into this where I thought I knew some about it, but then I'm now learning deeper and I'm actually fortunately in our company are doing training sessions and I've got another one tomorrow um, about like just because the way you've set the system or the structure, you know, that may say that someone has passed or failed. It doesn't necessarily mean the other person isn't amazing. Like a perfect example is, you know, like Greta Thunberg, who, you know, she's, I, I believe it's, it's Asperger's or aut she's got autism or she's somewhere on the spectrum. Um, and I, I don't know the correct way to say it, so I won't kind of go on too much detail about trying to analyze what's the, the correct term there. But um, in terms of her, she's an amazing person. And whether you do or don't like her mission, she is a young person who's pushing amazing things and, and is clearly talented and very skillful. But if you just judge on, you know, does she have a, a neurological um, gift, you could say? Yes, she does, and she might be different to the norm. Um, and that's almost the perfect example, right? So there's gonna be so many people who feel like outcasts or they're, you know, they're in a school and especially 10 or 15 years ago where we didn't truly understand like a software developer would become the normal person in society that's getting all the best roles and the best pay, right? So we, we've gone through this phase and um, it seems like where you were, it was you weren't necessarily surrounded by loads of people who understood your talents or your skills. There was a few that guided you in the right way, but a lot of it was you kind of just doing things yourself, knocking on the right doors, and it's kind of snowballed into this place where now you kind of know who you are and you're very confident about your ability. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's actually been very recently that I've even figured all of this out, and I, I think to your point there, an example I can think of, um, we my high school had a partnership with Purdue University, so obviously a big engineering school, and uh, because of that, the desktop computers in that class were, were more powerful. And um, I remember being in there and, you know, they're teaching us how to draw the 3D diagrams on the papers and stuff. But then we would, I don't even think it was CAD software at the time, to be honest, but we'd go back to the computers. And for me, because I knew they were more powerful, um, what I was actually doing, I, I had a little um, jump drive that I was able to put like a, a version of Windows on it. So think of it as almost like a virtual machine that I was running of Windows from the flash drive, and I'd have a bunch of video games on it. Um, so anytime I was in school by a computer, I'd just plug that in, and because the computer was still processing it, I'd have all these games. But at one point, I figured out how to install the original Halo on the school's network drive. 
So because I did that, <laughs> all of us in our engineering class, because the computers could actually handle at least Halo at that point, um, which was about 10 years after Halo had come out, so it could handle it. But yeah, we had everybody in class, we'd be jumping on and playing Halo, and it was set up like a giant land battle. And if you told me <laughs> what I did, I would, I would have zero clue being able to tell you anything. And I think even my engineering teacher at the time, I mean, people just had no idea. It was like, what, you know, what the heck did Dan just go do? <laughs> so it's really interesting. Did, so through this period then, when you, you, and you said it was, it's only recently you've truly kind of owned this person that you've become. Did you at times feel like, um, did, you know, kind of the imposter syndrome? Like, did you feel like I'm, maybe I'm not as good, good as I'm supposed to be? Maybe I don't have these skills. Is that a thing you, you, you experienced? Oh yeah, 100%. Um, so it's recently here kind of coming up with a ADHD diagnosis that I, it's, you know, never, I guess I never in where I am in Indiana, I never wanted to admit weakness, I guess. Um, you know, my teachers speaking with friends or anything, they're like, Dan, this doesn't surprise us one single bit. But to me, I had never actually admitted that in my head. So um, for me being a competitive competitive swimmer growing up, my, my swim coaches were like, Dan, why did you not figure this out sooner? Because um, I was always kind of a mental case. I, I know that I was the hardest trainer, even in the state, even swimming in college division one, I, I knew what I was doing in high school. I was out training everybody. But the problem would be I'd go behind the block and I'd scare myself. And it would be like basically telling myself all the reasons that I wasn't good enough. And um, when it would come to the end of the year, especially representing my school, I just put so much pressure on myself to do well. Um, it always backfired in my face. And I, I think for me, after kind of doing a lot of cognitive therapy and trying to dig into this, it's like, why is that happening? And luckily, I had an amazing girlfriend that we have an amazing story how we met this past year. But just a couple months ago, she came out to visit. And I mean, everything just started to click when she came out. And um, that started to make me look back, like my, my time at GE, um, I was part of their very technical teams, but some of my managers just made me feel dumb. And they would give me very kind of easy tasks because they thought that was my ability level. Whereas where I had really good managers over there, they gave me outcomes and they didn't tell me what technology to use or how to do it. They just allowed me to you know, use all my full ability to solve the problem. And looking back, those managers were my very best managers because they didn't question what I was doing. They, they allowed me to kind of bring my full skill set there. And it was a ton of fun working for them. That, that is a, uh, a really great point that stems to something I was actually about to, to, to mention, uh, coming from the same uh, kind of flow we were on where digital and the whole enterprise transformation and, and right now, like the fact that every day we're all talking about it like is work from home the new norm is this forever and and many of us are like well i'm actually like many of us are better working from home like um especially even if there are things like neurodiversity or if someone has adhd or add and they might be more comfortable being very very focused single track on something uh, distracted by other people or other things or maybe less comfortable or maybe more anxious in an office environment um, and this is truly allowing people to just get on. And if leadership and management focus on the right things, it could be that we all actually focus on outcomes. And all of us who've been looking at things like agile and DevOps on digital enterprise transformation, we have been saying that is the way to go. It doesn't necessarily matter. Like 
you don't have to work from eight or nine in the morning till five or six in the evening. You could be a talent that can do things in 30 minutes or an hour, but that's totally, like, if we're doing it the right way, it's like, do it how you need to do it. Use your time how you need to. If you need to take a nap, go and take a nap. If you need to go and do star jumps for an hour or go and, uh, you know, do some swimming, whatever it could be. Yes. That's the way, that's the way to, to get the most out of people. And it's so funny that we're still stuck in this. I, it's, it's very much like 50 plus years ago and kind of yeah, maybe even further forward, but the kind of manufacturing style of working where I have to do this output for this period of time. And then I will go on my shift and then you come and take your turn and then you'll do the work. If I can't see you working, Dan, you are not performing. You're not doing your job, right? That's kind of the, the era we've come from and, and where we are now. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I was just kind of talking about it this morning with my dad. Um, again, he just retired after 40 years of high school history teaching. Um, and I can't even make this up. It's called Farmland Indiana. So you can probably imagine the type of kids that he was trying to teach. And you see a lot of stuff that's wrong in the public school system where, you know, they, they graduate kids who probably don't know how to read only because that's the only way that the school can make money. And if the school is getting money and incentivized only by money, um, you know, you're, you're sending kids out into the world without any education. And what he sees, I mean, he has kids who can barely list three states. And you're talking kids who have never left the state of Indiana, let alone be taught any of these STEM credentials. So it's, it's really interesting. But you, you kind of brought up a point there. Um, you know, I don't want to pull politics into it, but it's um, with Pete Buttigieg and I kind of had that viral LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago when I called out McKinsey. And I, I think the thing for McKinsey to be aware of, if, if they're the cutting edge and they're the people writing the management books, when you look at people here in Indiana and in Muncie, Indiana, say Ivy Tech teaching leaders or Ball State teaching the leaders, you know, those universities, it's kind of the trickle down of education. So if we're still using these management models from 50, 60 years ago, even if McKinsey starts teaching these new things now, it's going to be another 10 to 15 years before they even teach people that around here. So you, you see all these different management styles that just don't work in today's age. And in the leaders, they, you know, you can't fault them because it's been what they've been taught and what they've been raised in. Um, but at the same time, how do you start to make a change of that? And that's, that's where it gets really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's like, and, and while that's happening, there's other high performers who are moving faster. You could look at some of the Silicon Valley companies, some of the, the you know, even the, the large companies here in New York that have global presences as well. And they're starting to kind of absorb some of these things. So as that happens, the gulf grows between the kind of the, the high performers and the, and the kind of the stragglers in there. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's how do we catch up and then implement these changes and, and absorb them because it's all good. Like you could believe in it. The leader might believe in it, but then what like systematic changes can you make in the company? Cause it's, and it's really hard to accept. Like I, I understand why people don't follow these things straight away. It's basically signing something saying, I accept that I've been doing it the wrong way for forever. And the new way is better. Uh, but I have an ego and it tells me that I should, I should know what's best because I'm the boss, right? It's very hard to yep. say that and accept that maybe you don't know everything and that there's this new shiny way of doing things that's better than what you did before. Yeah, and honestly, that's probably a great segue into like why I got into product management um, is really, I, I think what I noticed at GE, I'd found a huge, huge technical problem for them and some of their finance systems. And um, at that point, I was rolling off my leadership program and, you know, I'd seen that these auditors, they're, 
they may be all right at finding a problem, but it never actually got implemented. And I think what I found, it, it wasn't that the, the software engineers were doing a bad job. It was the product people. And it, it was that the business was doing a really poor job of actually finding the right problem to solve. And if you look at product management, same thing with a consumer issue or an internal IT issue. If you're a true product manager, you're there to make your customer, you're there to solve the best thing for that customer, including an internal service. And I, I think what you see in these, especially these legacy IT environments, um, you're there to do whatever your boss told you. And if your boss told you to go build a database, you go build that database because he's your boss and in charge of your promotion. You know, you may find out that, oh, we should be doing something entirely different, but they may not see it that way. And it's to your point, it's all systematic change that, you know, what's the, what's the incentive model for those executives? And if those incentive models for each of those executives clash with each other, now you're not, now you're not going to enable those software developers to actually do the right thing because they just want to hold on to it and they want to say that they're owning something. And I think for me specifically, I've been working with a great business transformation coach, uh, Sam McAfee. Um, we met when I was working over at GE and a lot of what he teaches is really just letting go. And I think for me being such a perfectionist, me wanting to hold on to that, it's taken a lot of work with him one-on-one, -on -one, but also even with a therapist. And it's like, why, why do I want to hold on to this? And what really makes me want to hold on to it? So when I go back to my different teams, it's like, I want to give them an outcome. And it's like, just because I could tell you how to do it, doesn't mean I want to, because I want you to figure it out on your, your own. And you're also going to level yourself up with that. And I think for me, it was more, how do I contain my frustration without, you know, with just saying something instead of letting them kind of have that full power. And it's incredibly hard to do. And I, if I'm imagining that it's this hard for me with all of this work, all of this, um, coaching and training. Um, imagine somebody who's been in the workforce for 20, 30 years. I mean, that's, that goes against everything that they've been taught. And it, it's so hard. So I, I definitely see that and definitely know it's a challenge. Yeah, that, that's something I've seen a lot where it's, it's very hard for, especially in tech, where people think very logically more often than not like engineering is like solving logical problems using steps like you don't know the answer but you 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 re-engineer the solution to get there and so if you are especially like a maybe more junior manager that's trying to teach people in the team this this regular thing you see of i'll just do it for you like move out of the way let me show you or they'll ask a question and then you'll just give the answer to it. But there's something that's so much more important about being the facilitator of someone else's learning. So it's like they ask the question and you say, how do you think you can get it? And you kind of give them little hints and the next thing, the person's solving the problem. But it also takes a step of like kind of letting that, take that leap of faith where you have to, again, like remove our own ego, step back and like give the team some empowerment to take that next step. And it's really hard because it's like, well, I then have my position if I tell everyone that if I let them do this and show me they're better. But before you know it, you kind of elevate with them, right? Like the rising tide continues to lift all the ships and the whole team gets better. And then everyone recognizes that as a high performing team. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, it, it always starts with leadership there. It's like, you know, are, are you listening to your employees? And especially with software development, guess what? They're the ones actually doing the work. Why the heck would you get in their way? And if you can give them the business goal, 
engineers are going to talk to each other and for them like they're solving cool problems if you're giving them cool problems to solve you know that's what they're there to do then it's your job as that leader in middle management or upper management is how do you enable those employees and especially legacy IT orgs it's if you're middle management you need to say hey you know we need this data source over here connected to this data source how do we get that is that DBA keys is that some AWS account but you know, you're, you're going to have to think there. And I, I think especially with product management, you have to you have to go in with a blank slate. And just like we keep hearing here with all this systematic change, you know, it's the, in product, we call it tech debt. And if you build up so much tech debt, you either keep building on that tech debt, knowing that you have a, a legacy piece of that system that's always going to be your bottleneck, or you just go do something new and build on top of, you know, a new platform. Um, but what's tough there, again, in these legacy IT orgs, it's always a bill versus buy, buy decision. And more than likely, because it's always numbers and finance ruling IT, they're going to go with the cheaper option, which means you're going to go with an Oracle or some package software that it may somewhat solve the issue, but, but doesn't really solve the issue. Where if you went just custom there, it would definitely take you a little further. But so anyway, more, more, we, of a, more of a band-aid to, to like, it might fix it temporarily, but you haven't really got to the root cause and, and, and again, systematically changed how you're doing things. Yeah, it, exactly. It's something that was really interesting over at GE and their um, leadership program. Um, we were originally the IT leadership program and we merged with the software development leadership program. And it was really interesting to see the divide that happened because you had all of a sudden had these IT leaders who came up through that kind of project management eye blend with the software people. And it was almost clashing terms because the IT people were more kind of businessy background, come from, you know, more well-off areas than you have the software developers who, you know, were, were weird. Um, I probably was between the two there because I came through the IT side of it, but still it, but it was interesting talking to them. And I remember we talked about ERPs and the IT people knew about it, but the software people had no idea. They're like, what the heck is an enterprise resource planning system? And I think that kind of says it enough there that you have all of these people who talk about ERPs and the people who are actually building them don't even know that. And if you look at the software developers who work on ERPs, typically they're not, and I hope this doesn't insult anybody, but they're typically not the best coders and it's because you have like these older companies like an Oracle or SAP, you know, you don't hear about somebody being an ABAP programmer for SAP. You hear about them being an AWS or a JavaScript engineer. And the reality is these older, you know, SAP and Oracle are just legacy technologies and people right out of school, why would you want to go into that? Like you want to go do something cutting edge. So if you're not doing something cloud enabled, you're basically paying these other vendors you know, just to come in and, and build you something that's already 20 years behind. So why would you do that? Um, I don't know, but that's and also me. You're racking up more and more tech debt. That's, that's really the, the, the bottom line there. I think you were trying to get to, right? It's, we have these legacy systems. We have this tech debt. We have, we have prioritization issues where we're like, we want to move to the cloud. We want to use automation and bring in containers and everything else to become a modern environment and get our customers what they want quickly. At the same time, you have this legacy systems. We must maintain them. Okay, let's keep paying yeah. the vendor. Let's keep doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think we talked about this before, but it's you see so many times, and again, these legacy IT environments, it's like, 
let's containerize all of these legacy apps. And it's like, okay, how much are you paying for your engineer to containerize an app that's 25 years old? And it's like, okay, you may be paying that engineer. It's probably going to be more engineering effort to containerize that and deploy it than it would be to just rewrite whatever that application would be using like a cloud native technology. But businesses don't think that way because most business people are just going to see, oh, here's the application that I use all the time. And, and you see it all the time. If you put out a new piece of software, it's you have the right people to support that. And then you have to think about here's all the support documents, who's the help desk. But then you talk about what's user experience in UX, which is still the most, um, I would say, misunderstood field out there. But if you had a great user experience, you wouldn't need all that training and support if you actually built it in a modern framework. And I think something there, I've just seen user experience teams just, they get the short end of the stick all of the time because in business, you can't just put a dollar amount to something. You know, it's like if, you know, I think digital companies, say like a Google or an e-commerce site, you can measure, oh, we've reduced this from 10 clicks to two clicks. Um, that's very cutting edge and that's very much with these digital companies. But if you go to these legacy IT orgs, they don't understand that. And especially in these orgs um, that aren't led by software engineering, they really don't understand that. So when you have to go to these, you know, high up um, people inside of the business and explain these things to them, it, it's just really tough to wrap their head around. And then it discredits your entire UX department. And it's, it's really sad to see, and it's something I definitely always try and help out with. But when you can't put a tangible number behind it inside a business, it's really tough. But it's, again, it's something that you have to rethink from the ground up. And your leadership team needs bought into that, too. So you just can't have these people explain themselves all the time. Yeah, I, I think that that's um, what stemmed, I think, in the last maybe five years where you're seeing more and more leadership being true technologists. So let, like, and that's technologists that are almost learning the business rather than business people who have to, there's nothing, by the way, both sides are t totally great and do many good things for all these companies. But the modern day CIO and CTO role being you know, purists that came through the ranks and they are technologists. They've worked in, in companies that are modern day tech firms, um, even if they're fortune 50, but they've, they've absorbed a lot of the, they, they know how Google work now. They know how Facebook work and so on. And they're absorbing that into legacy companies. So you're seeing that a lot more and, and bit by bit, kind of the traditional management of we're just the business, your technology, there's a divide between us. So I think as we see that change in companies, you're going to see more and more of this, like the true transformation and understanding of where they're going. Yeah. So, so, Sorry, to, to, so Dan, one thing I was going to say to you there, you, met, you mentioned a few moments ago about, um, you, know, a time, you know, being a product manager or working in product management. So just very briefly, because some of the people that listen would be total, you know, junior level, maybe haven't even had their first tech job or, or any job outside of university. There might also be some people at sea level listening, but just a really sort of a 30 second, what, what is product management and what does a product manager do compared to maybe a software developer or a, a person on the true business side? Yeah, so product management, um, definitely one of the most misunderstood fields out there. But if you look at modern product management, it's all about how do you deliver the most value to your customer? And what makes this so difficult is often you're going to have a web of stakeholders that it's going to be almost impossible to please everybody. But it's your job to ultimately control the flow of work that's going to your software engineers. 
And I, I would say the mark of a good product manager would be somebody who can make everybody happy, which is impossible, but can get close enough there, but is still getting um, the value there for the business. And it, it's something it, I would say the biggest confusion would be a product versus a project manager. And if you look, a, a project manager is there to deliver work and make sure that something's being delivered. It has a lot of overlap with probably what we're familiar with as a scrum master or a delivery master. And product, again, you're, you're there to make sure the consumer is getting the right thing for them. So is your consumer happy? Um, that, that's really the main goal there. And, and how are you going to deliver value to the business? So consumer first, but then also making the business happy. And that, that takes a lot of conversations, a lot of understanding how the business works, why things work a certain way, but it's also up to you to give your team the full flexibility there to um, deliver everything. Sorry, getting everything in 30 I, seconds is I, tough for me. I think I was a bit, <laughs> bit mean there by asking you 30 seconds. That was brutal. <laughs> but okay. I, an unbel like, and for the record, Dan hadn't pre-prepared that, guys. So he, <laughs> I, I just threw it out there and it was almost as if you had the script. You had nailed that, uh, that description. Um, so the, the, the real kind of the piece that I picked up on there is making sure the customers get what they want, uh, you know, providing the business value um, and not, in a way that a project manager would make sure everyone's on time and doing things like to schedule based on the plans. The product manager is more in between making sure that the teams are happy, the customer's happy. And if there's a change in the middle of this, that, you know, everyone understands why and, and there's a value behind what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And I, I think when you look at it there and, and something that definitely comes up and even developers I've worked with, um, they are used to kind of being told more what to do. And I think that's more feedback on myself. Some developers realistically do need things more listed out, but I would hope there that's where you have an engineering manager to step in to make sure they have more of those steps as a product person. You know, they, they typically gauge it from how big is your backlog and I would say with a lot of the trends that's happening in product, you never really want to have a backlog more than maybe a sprint and a half. So maybe a month tops because everything's changing so quickly. If you have a backlog that's a year long, you're probably not solving the right thing for your customer, which again could be an internal business function if you're IT or if you're consumer facing, that would truly be for your consumer. Um, but you want to have that as short as possible and you want your team to really come up with the roadmap in talking to your team, because again, they're the people who are actually building this, not you. So as long as you're giving them the right problems to solve, and you as the product person are digging deep to find whatever those problems are, then that's your main primary job. And delivery, depending on what kind of framework or what your company is using, that's where you would have a delivery manager, scrum master there, to kind of make sure the team's operating you know, in its best capacity. So that, that, this is great to hear because that you know there's been time we, we've had all sorts of backgrounds on on the podcast and it, sometimes it's you know someone who's deep technically sometimes it's the you know a CIO sometimes it's a you know software developer it could be anyone in in the range and we're often talking about kind of like how things you know it's the durable DevOps podcast right how, how these technologies how these mindsets work together but your this angle it explains it perfectly because really what we're doing is we want the technologists to be able to work as effectively as quickly and at the highest quality as possible so that that's a seamless thing so if someone like you Dan comes and says guys you know here's where we're at here's what the business says they need here's what the customer wants 
the technology isn't something that causes a delay. It's now on the teams and the system and the process to get everything else right. And the quicker we can get that to the customer with the least problems and failures as, as possible, the, the happier the customer is going to be because they can say, I want this thing done. And a week later it's changed or, you know, in the fastest um, scenarios, you know, in a few hours, they're getting changes based on the customer feedback, which is the true high performers. And obviously in some companies, the more normal range would be something like four to weeks to three months. And there's many companies that are still, like you said, looking at one year cycles of getting things back to people. Yeah. And I think the big thing there, and this is something it's, I mean, it's always going to be a struggle trying to get this. And where I say product management, having a good product practice is going to be your number one thing for the concept of digital transformation. Because at this point, when you have someone really leading this, um, this product manager, they're, one, they're going to control work, but a product manager also needs to set stakeholder expectations. And you need the business to now move at the speed of your development team not the business putting false deadlines in front of this team. And what I see all the time, and I'm sure what, what you and your listeners see, is the business is going to set a deadline for something, and next thing you know, your engineers, who are always terrible at estimating, and I, I myself, I'm a terrible estimator at work, but now you're stressing out your employees who you need to keep as relaxed as possible because you're putting a deadline there. And I, I do understand the business is always going to have deadlines, but again, you need... You need those deadlines to be flexible around your team, not the rest of the business, because you're now moving at the speed of your software developers, your design team, and the people actually building your product, not marketing, not somebody over in finance. It's those roles and responsibilities need to learn how to work around the team actually building things. Uh, and, and one of the things I've seen you talk about um, in some of your posts uh, and on your blog, uh, product thinking versus product management. So is that precisely what we're talking about now? Or is there something further that we maybe haven't discussed that is this true kind of difference between the thinking and management product approach? Yeah, I think there's different philosophies there. And it, I mean, if you look at agile, it's really more just a mindset. It really depends for every company that that's going to come in there and, you know, pick what's going to work best for you. Um, you know, PMO organizations, they're there for a reason. And especially with large companies, when they scale, um, you need to have agile at scale. And realistically, you do need to have set processes in place. And I think for us over at P&G, we had an amazing, amazing scrum master um, who came in and started really putting these processes in place that allowed things to be a little more manageable. But still, we always had these deadlines that were realistically just um, tough to meet. So that it, it's all a balance. But uh, to your point there with product thinking, product thinking to me is just how do you productize something? So... If you have a, you know, a data sheet, here's 10 columns of data, think and kind of work with your UX team and your designers there of, hey, here are 10 data inputs. What does that look like, you know, putting a, a user interface on top of it? So like for me, I love blockchain and blockchain's inherently a, a protocol layer. So how do you look at the protocol or the API calls and think, okay, how, do, how can I turn this API into an actual product? Or even better, here's my API that we're now selling. How can I think about that as a product? So maybe in two weeks from now, we want to do a new release of this API so our end users won't have you know, any of, of our endpoints change, but maybe we're switching to a, 
a Go backend versus a, um, a Node backend. And we're going to see the benefits. So me as a product person, I would say, hey, because we're switching to, switching to a Go service, we're saving $4,000 a month based on our you know, current database queries. So it's like that's, that's kind of how you start to think of it as a product versus where a project would be, hey, this consultant that we hired um, says we should go switch to Go, and it's going to take us a year to do it. And, you know, here's, here's XYZ that we need to go do. Now you're not moving with the team. You're just listening to whoever this architect was and forcing your employees to now go build that, if that makes sense there. So if you work in projects, inherently, you're not enabling outcomes and you're not enabling your team. So it's, a t it's really a, a rethink and it, it's not like too far from like people necessarily if they're doing it the other way aren't like on a crazy different track. They don't have to make a massive change. It is like a change in the mindset and, and like a flow of how you would work. Not just we'll hire this one person. We're going to just do whatever they say. And that's the way we're going to transform everything. It's like, how does this team maybe even upskill and, and work together? What level of thinking are they on? And then how do we get them to provide the value that we know they already have potentially anyway? Exactly. And it, I think with that model as well, say where DevOps comes in is, you know, continual delivery. Um, organizations, you know, even five years ago, they never had continual delivery. It was you had to hire agency XYZ to come in and build. So you had to tell them and have everything mapped out for them to go build. Um, but again, now that you have people coming internal, you need to shift that and, and try and instead of having everything built out or specced out beforehand, let your team actually solve that along the way. Because I'm sure if you ask anybody, say an ERP rollout, they never go to plan and specs are always going to change as you're building. And the reality is it's just because software development's different than, say, hardware development. And if you look at hardware development in the past, um, hardware is expensive. If you don't have that right before it gets sent to the factory, you're going to have a lot of issues. So you had to spend a lot of money making sure that that hardware was correct before you deployed it and sent it to the factory. Software, as we all know, you know, you can deploy things every second if you really wanted to. Um, so how do you change to fit continuous delivery instead of kind of that old way of thinking, if that makes sense? Uh, that does make sense, definitely. So, so I, I, I'm I'm loving picking your brains, by the way, Dan. You you've got such uh, you know so many different interesting angles and, and insights to share with us. I, I'm going to flip back to similar. It almost comes with the background point that you started to talk to us about because we've been on a flow now. We've talked about um, you know product thinking. We've talked about the technology side and and digital. Uh, back back to a bit more about you because. There's a piece about your background that I find really interesting. I can relate to a lot about kind of coming from an underserved community. Um, and like I, I personally started my life in, in the, the lowest um, quality of life area of the UK in a borough called Newham. Um, it was extremely poor, you know, very many broken families. There, you know, it wasn't the place where you become, uh, you know, someone who works in business or in technology or, or go and live in New York. And fortunately, through a number of things like, you know, like my mum being a, a great person and, and guiding me in the right way and then school being good and things like that. I found a way to like become go to university and, and become more than maybe what I should have based on my circumstances. Uh, and I don't always talk about that openly, but I think, you know, but given that you've shared some with me about your background, I think it's just good for people who may be in that environment to hear 
from guys like you, from guys like me who are saying, we're not there anymore and we were, and you can do it and kind of share how you can get there. So some of the lessons you, firstly, a bit more about that. If I can remember correctly, I think you said that something like 90% of the people you went to school with were on free lunches. Just start from there and give us a bit more about that, the environment, and then some of the lessons you learned that allowed you to get to where you are today. Yeah. So yeah, for me, um, Muncie, Indiana, we, we typically don't make the news for good things. Um, I think our biggest news that we had a while ago was a meth lab blowing up inside of our local Walmart. Um, if if that tells you exactly, it's, um, it's been very interesting. Um, Muncie was very much, uh, if you've heard the phrase like Rust Belt USA, um, we had a lot of auto manufacturers here. Um, my grandpa actually had a couple patents with AC Delco. They were a battery company um, and a patent for like the, well, not really modern anymore, but the modern nickel battery. Um, so that's really why my family was in Muncie and, and kind of grew up around here. But um, to that point, uh, at one point we had three high schools in the city. Um, and then historically, even our, the high school I actually went to were still Indiana's most state championships for basketball. Um, but those were all back in the 50s, 60s. Um, we don't even have anywhere near that. We're not even in the same division that we had over there. And it's, it's really a sign of just all the money in the area has gone away without manufacturing jobs. Um, we were directly impacted by that. And, um, for what I see is just, you know, kids I grew up with, they're all car junkies. They love doing that stuff, but they just don't realize that, you know, a lot of that stuff's irrelevant. And it's like, if I would bring up, Hey, do you see that new Tesla? Have you seen it in ludicrous mode? They're like, ah, oh, no, that's still not going to beat my big, uh, you know, Ram diesel with a custom turbo put on it. And it's like, well, you know, it is going to get beat, but I know you don't want to admit that. Um, you know, a lot of things that I was around kind of drugs were definitely sold in school. I, I guess I was kind of naive to it. Um, we joked around with some of the kids who were definitely drug dealers, but we never were like, oh, that's, you know, that's just such and such. That's, you know, what they do. Um, so it was very normalized. And luckily, I had a really, really good group of friends that we all stayed out of trouble. Um, they all had a really good accounting teacher, actually. Uh, this Letzinger that got, I, well, I want to say out of probably my eight closest friends, six of them went into accounting. So they had really good influences. And luckily, we had really, really good teachers who truly were there to help us and kind of show us that way. Um, it's just kind of sad that public schools, you know, don't get as much attention. Yeah, it's, but, uh, that's, yeah, I, I hear you. It's like, you can just kind of, often people are just leaving areas behind, right? There's, they're focusing on, on this other area that's high performing. They're not thinking about like how they can make a change. And I, I think they just often don't realize that they can improve and, and get people to the next level. And more often than not, you'll find, okay, there is a scenario of someone making it, but they end up being like the anomaly right in that in that place rather than being the, the kind of the the norm and so i think there's ways to do it that's like something that we're, we're even doing at m3 you know looking at how do we get people from underserved communities in any scenario across the country and and get them into a job in a technology role in a you know a fortune 500 company uh, some of the ways we've thought about doing that are things like you know we'll we, pre-COVID or in the normal days, it would be that, you know, we'd fly someone in to do training. Now that's virtual. Uh, you know, we would cover a stipend for every week that someone's training. 
and then we would cover relocation for six months once they you know leave our academy if they leave, live more than two hours from that place so there's ways like uh, instead of being like a boot camp where you say I, I want to to come and work or I want to come and learn I'll pay you to learn instead getting paid to learn and then being shown okay there is a world even if it's just eight weeks training that you come to New York and you see the big bright lights and then you're around all of these other people that come from anywhere across the country, you're going to just instantly, that's creating new opportunities. And then if you get a job at the end of training and there's this middle person, which happens to be M3 that can explain to hiring managers how relevant this is and that not everyone has to come from a, you know, a, an Ivy league university and they still have the right technology understanding, the right mindset. And I think that passion to learn, anyone can do this. So I, I'm seeing more and more interest in that kind of program and people being you know, wanting more diversity of thought, as well as obviously diversity in things like gender, ethnic background, cultural background. Um, but I, I think just the more and more we can share these stories of people of, look, this person was you know, a director at a major company and they're here talking to you. I think that's just some of the, it's representation that I think is important and, and sharing stories. Oh yeah, no, I, absolutely. And I, I think a good story to share there is um, um, I was very lucky and some swimming coaches actually in the area, I was lucky enough to get on the board of directors of Indiana Swimming at 15. And uh, that taught me a lot of my business skills, but it, it was truly my passion for the sport that, that got me onto that position. And that kind of same passion actually got me onto USA Swimming's board. Um, probably the best impromptu speech in my life, but I even had an Olympian stand up and say, hey, we want Dan on this position. And I was able to get that. Um, but the main point of that story is uh, for the first time in my life, I was offered mileage. So I had to drive at the time I was going to school kind of right by Detroit area. And I was driving down to actually it was Indianapolis for a meeting and that was mileage. And I remember the um, executive assistant for USA Swimming um, asking like, uh, Hey Dan, like what was your mileage? If you save your receipts, we'll give you money. And to me, I was like, wait, why would you give me money? Like, this is a nonprofit. Like I, this is what I love. Why, why would I, why would I take money from you when I'm doing this on my own? And, um, for me just at that time, I, I didn't know that that was a thing and that people can do that. So to your point, like how you could, um, how you could have people go see New York for the first time to, to be flown out somewhere or just to be given mileage like that, that, that's going to absolutely, you know, make their day. And I, I think for me, again, I was, I was very lucky. My, my aunt um, did very well for herself in, in the finance world and had a place out in Long Island that we would vacation at every, every year. Um, and so New York City, um, we drove through it every year. And that, that was something that was familiar to me. And it was, you know, I always made it a goal to myself. I'm like, this is where I want to be. And this is what I want to get to. But if I wasn't, you know, growing up and lucky enough to have an aunt out there, maybe I would have never had that ambition. So to your point there, you know, get these people in front of stuff like this and show them that it's possible. That's it. Just opening your eyes sometimes to what's out there and seeing that, you know, your small town might not be the, the, uh, the end of the world that you, you and your friends or family might think it is, right? So... Um, but the, so, Dan, uh, you know, you, you worked or you, you're interested in and you've worked in IoT. Um, I, I thought I would just put it out there, before, you know, before we kind of come to a, a near end of this. But um, anything that's interesting right now that like I might not know or that our listeners might not know, just any interesting concepts, I'll throw it to you to just say I've seen this thing or I'm interested in this area. Go for it. 
Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, IoT is just so interesting. It, it's something for us that I think people just need to be aware of is you're essentially putting a full on operating system on these small devices. And you really need to have end to end management of that. And it, it's something that we saw over at PNG. It's um, when you can have a team dedicated from embedded software to the actual web technology or to your cloud technology and then the app team, you can move so, so fast and you can do so many amazing things and you just have that peace of mind with security, um, it's absolutely the way to go. But it, it is, you have to make sure that you have a team across all those different disciplines to, to really see that and bring that to life. And I think we're gonna start seeing a lot more of that. Um, but no, my, my most interesting thing, I, I love blockchain. So I, um, I mined cryptocurrency back um, when I was in college. I actually heated my college house with it. Um, I was mining Litecoin. But I knew at the time, if I built this giant desktop rig, it was about three grand to, to piece everything out. But I knew if I got AMD cards at the time were actually much better at number crunching than NVIDIA cards. This was kind of before CUDA really took off. Um, but what was really interesting about these is they were Radeon 6950s. But you could, if, you, if you're familiar with how graphics um, card manufacturing would work, um, it was a little bit different, but you could actually hack the software on those cards to turn them into the higher end model. And it was actually a sign of AMD was just a better at manufacturing at that point. It's very rare that GPUs would work like that. Um, but anyway, I was able to get those in mine Litecoin and paid off my desktop in only about two and a half months. I completely paid off the $3,000 desktop rig. Um, why I'm kicking myself is if I had just kept onto that money at the end of 2017, I would have had got almost $4 million or more um, oh. if I would have held on to that. Um, but no, I love uh, the Stellar Development Foundation. It's something I've been following since really their inception in 2015. When you look at Jed McCaleb, he is the smartest guy in blockchain. And when you look at what he is building there, um, so many people, I think we've looked at Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum even, as you know these the waves of the future without really digging deeper into them and kind of questioning why those are the big things and um you know you've seen all this investment i remember schooling uh, i think it was deloitte somebody came in the g to talk about crypto and i'm like why why the heck are you even talking about that we're so far away from what you're describing especially theory wise like how much money are we ge wasting paying you um but anyway but I think if you look at the Stellar Protocol, it, it automates so much of our financial network. And what is really unique about it is a lot of jobs will be displaced if something like that really takes root. And when you look at blockchain, um, especially talking to so many of my friends um, who want small government, I think as we go into the future with AI and automation, how do we lower taxpayer dollars? Um, we're going to need better sources of data and, and blockchain is going to be the answer for that. And we have to move quickly uh, if we want to still be relevant. So it's, it's going to be very interesting here in the future, how, how blockchain is going to play a role, look around the world, how things are going blockchain. It's uh, it's a complete rewrite of the financial system. So it's really exciting. It's, it's scary because it's going to bring in so much change. Um, but also great, exactly like your initiative is we're going to have to get new talent and new software engineers in the door um, to help these businesses out now more than ever. So it's, it's really exciting. 
Yeah, so that could be a, a, a next focus and a kind of another area in the same way that we've had this last period being, you know, we've moved towards things, you know, agile, DevOps, we've now got kind of software development engineers and tests, cybersecurity, AI, data science, all these kind of roles that are interesting and shiny. And, you know, if you could leave university and get a job like that, it would be amazing. The you know, sort of next interesting piece that companies can think about is blockchain and kind of how they can leverage this. And we, we know that, you know, many of them are doing detailed research or, or kind of use cases and seeing what they can do, but it really hasn't, hasn't picked up in the mainstream as, you know, that much at this point it's going to, but it hasn't yet is that's kind of where we are, I think. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, this technology has been around 12 years. It's nothing new. And I think it's just been because it's been so expensive to look at and ultimately do something um, because it's not really a user facing technology. It's, you know, it doesn't, it didn't get the attention it deserved. And, um, but if you look under the hood and actually see how it's changing things, especially with privacy becoming such a concern. And honestly, if you think the number one product feature right now is security, and unless you are using blockchain to secure something, I would say that you're not secure. So if companies are really prioritizing that, you're, you're going to start seeing it much, much more. That's an interesting point. If you're not using it, then you're not secure. That's a, I, I wonder if we'll have people you know, arguing against that and see what they think. I would like to hear if anyone does have thoughts on that, please reach out to me or Dan and, and let us know, you know, do you agree or do you disagree <laughs> with that? Um, so, so look, Dan, I, I realize I, I've stolen an hour of your time on this afternoon, and I'm, and I'm really glad that you've, you've, uh, you've taken the time to go into detail on so many different topics. Uh, before we wrap up, where, if people wanted to look you up or, or find out more or even connect with you, where are some of the places people could reach out to you? Yeah, I definitely say uh, I'm in the process here building my new website, hopefully in Flutter, finally get my hands dirty on that, uh, intangible.tech. Um, is the URL there right now? It'll take you to my old computing with Dan website, but, uh, in the process of updating that, um, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Daniel Proctor one, uh, over on Twitter, Dan Proctor 11 and, uh, over on Instagram, actually, I've been posting a lot of just my, my random thoughts, but that's uh, Dan Proctor 48. Great. Well, again, thank you so much uh, for, for joining me today. I've really enjoyed it. I, I loved all of this conversation. Uh, to our listeners, thank you very much. This has been the Durable DevOps podcast powered by M3, the podcast about invincible IT built for the speed of change. Uh, I've been your host, Connor Dellenbank, and we've been joined by Dan Proctor. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone.